Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy, where we dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. Hey, I hope you had a great holiday weekend. Some of you are probably listening to this on your flight back from whatever fun place you went for the 4th of July. So this week, let's buzzkill the crap out of that for you, shall we? We're going to the friendly skies where airplanes emit about a billion tons of carbon dioxide every single year. That's about 2.4% of total CO2 emissions and carbon dioxide, of course, lingers in the atmosphere, heating the planet for thousands of years. But it's not just carbon dioxide. Those ethereal white contrails streaking out from behind a plane are actually apparently icy clouds of death that trap heat instead of reflecting it like regular clouds do. This is crazy. A 2011 study said the contrails alone have led to more warming than all of aviation's CO2 emissions ever. That takes air travel's climate impact all the way up to 3.5% of global warming. And the vast majority of those emissions are from passenger travel, which just keeps growing. So yeah, you. I'm sorry. So there's a lot of attention on air travel and trying to figure out how to decarbonize it. It is a tricky one. Batteries don't really work because there isn't enough range and they weigh too much. There's a thing called sustainable aviation fuel. We will dispense with that toward the end of the show. And then there's the holy grail, hydrogen, specifically green hydrogen, where hydrogen is created by splitting water molecules apart into hydrogen and oxygen using renewable energy. You collect the hydrogen, you release the oxygen, and for any more science than that, I'm bringing on today's guest. My name is Paul Aramenko. I am one of the co-founders and the CEO of Universal Hydrogen. And Universal Hydrogen is working to make the hydrogen value chain work end-to-end in the near future for a variety of mobility applications starting with aviation. Paul? is very smart. He studied aeronautics and astronautics at MIT, got a master's in aeronautics at Caltech, also got a law degree from Georgetown just in case, and he was previously the chief technology officer at Airbus and United Technologies Corporation. He also worked at Google and worked on Project Ara, which was an attempt to create a modular open standards smartphone platform. You would just swap out parts of your phone over time in a way that last week's guest, Kyle Weens, would love. And this modular thing, this will be important later. Now, the first thing you're going to want to do here is ask Paul about using hydrogen as a fuel source. And here's what he's going to say. So hydrogen, and actually maybe at the risk of starting on the wrong note, I'll start with a correction. Um, Hydrogen is not a fuel source. It is a fuel source in the grand scheme of the universe, in the sense that the stars are powered by hydrogen in some ways. I mean, I love him. All right, let's go on. Um, But actually on Earth, and in particular for aviation, for cars, for other mobility applications, it's it's not a fuel source. It's just a storage medium. 
Okay. Which means, uh, uh, and the reason for that is that hydrogen is not a naturally occurring element on Earth in spite of being the most abundant element in the universe. So we have to make hydrogen and invest energy into making the hydrogen. So it is in some ways a, a synthetic fuel for us. We have to synthesize it. And then it serves as an energy storage medium and releases the energy when, when you need it to release the energy. And so as an energy storage medium, as an energy carrier would be the engineering term for it, it is the most weight efficient of all possible energy carriers outside of nuclear fuels. And so it is a very efficient way of storing energy for applications that care about weight. And there's a few of them. Probably the most weight sensitive application that we have is space launch, rockets. Because you need a lot of fuel, they have to invest a lot of energy into getting to orbital velocity and orbital altitude. Mm -hmm. And rockets already, and have for most of their history, used hydrogen as a fuel for that very reason. It's a very, very efficient energy carrier. Okay. Um, and aviation is probably next in line. Most mobility applications have some degree of weight sensitivity, but aviation is right at the top of the list. And so, so that's one of the reasons that we see aviation as sort of the killer app for hydrogen and hydrogen as the ideal fuel for aviation long before there were any environmental considerations to take into account. And of course, now that's an added impetus for, for hydrogen adoption. So like I said, green hydrogen is really the holy grail. And its byproduct, or contrail, if you will, is water. But it's not without questions. It does depend on the availability of renewable electricity. And luckily, renewable electricity has been on an exponential growth trajectory since the, since the Paris Agreement, essentially. Yeah. And as a result, the cost of green hydrogen has decreased also exponentially. Uh, about two-thirds to three-quarters of the cost of, of green hydrogen is just the cost of input electricity. So as that gets cheaper, the hydrogen gets cheaper. And there's also an additional sort of dynamic here, which is a lot of sources of renewable electricity run 24-7, right? So if you have a hydropower dam, right, the water flows 24-7. But you typically don't have grid demand 24-7. You have peaks and troughs in, in grid demand. And so during off-peak hours, you're still producing the electricity, and running electrolyzers, which is the device used to, to break water into hydrogen and oxygen, um, running electrolyzers is a very efficient way of scavenging off-peak renewable electricity at very low prices. Hmm. And so this overall increase in, in renewable electricity and commensurate increase in off-peak renewable electricity that you can get very cheaply because there isn't really any other use for it, you can't store it efficiently, right. has led to a very rapid decrease in the cost of green hydrogen and a very significant increase in the volume production capacity of, of green hydrogen. So that's probably the most exciting trend that would answer the sort of why now question with hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of hydrogen as an energy storage mechanism for mobility applications, and in particular aviation, goes pretty far back. The first manned hydrogen airplane flew in the 1950s. Soviets flew an airliner in the 80s on, on liquid hydrogen. And none of that was environmentally driven, right? That was all just the, 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 the fundamental physics uh, that make hydrogen such a great aviation fuel. Right. This is where I feel like we should also finally clue people into what now, because you are, in fact, using this for airplanes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to make uh, hydrogen commercial aviation a, a near-term reality. So as early as 2025 or more likely 2026 in a more significant part of the world, um, we do expect to have uh, hydrogen regional airplanes in commercial service. 
Yes. Okay. So tell me what you've been building. We flew a prototype. Yes. Yeah. Like you've flown. Exactly. Is- yeah. That is the most exciting news of the last couple of months, March 2nd of this year. We flew uh, by far the largest airplane ever to fly on hydrogen fuel cells. That was in Moses Lake, Washington, and it was a 40, 50 passenger kind of regional airplane called the Dash 8. It's very similar to our first product, which will be a conversion of existing ATR-72s, which is the most popular regional airplane out there. And so we do two things as a company. We try to solve the hydrogen delivery, distribution, and infrastructure problem. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is we put hydrogen in modular capsules and use the existing freight network to deliver the hydrogen. So you don't have to build a a custom purpose-built infrastructure for hydrogen, which can be very expensive, very time-consuming, and you got to do it in a lot of places at once. So instead we say, hey, we're going to turn hydrogen into dry freight. And there already is a, a massive cargo network, cargo infrastructure out there. So we just piggyback off that cargo infrastructure. And of course, every airport knows how to handle cargo, has all that equipment. So we we internalize all the complexity of managing hydrogen inside our, our module, our modular capsule. And externally, it's just a piece of freight. It's just palletized cargo. And so, so we solve that infrastructure problem. We provide hydrogen as a service to airlines. And then we also, for the first product, which is this regional ATR-72, we provide a conversion kit to the airline so that we can sort of simultaneously solve the chicken and egg supply demand problem, mm-hmm. right? So, so we have an infrastructure solution to supply the hydrogen and we have a conversion kit that we can sell directly to the airline to convert their fleet. All right, let's talk first about the modules. Basically, they can, anywhere a shipping container can go, our modules can go, right? They stack into inside a shipping container and then go over this intermodal freight network that we have, which can take, comprises of trucks, trains, boats, so then, and the way that this creates infrastructure is that then when the regional jet arrives somewhere, there are modules. It's a plug and play system. There are modules waiting for it. They don't need a gas station, if you will. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And so we would take out the the depleted module from the airplane. We would insert a new fully fueled module. The depleted one would go in a reverse logistics uh, chain right? Get inspected. There's a health monitoring system on it uh, and get refueled and put back into circulation. Got it. Yeah. So I call it the Nespresso capsule model. Nespresso capsule. Exactly. We don't grow the coffee. We put it in a convenient form factor, use freight to deliver it to the consumer. They pop it into the coffee machine and we are building the first coffee machine. But in general, that's not our core business. Our core business is coffee as a service. Dear listeners, you don't know this, but we started off this conversation with Paul finishing off an espresso, which was very on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And unplanned, I might add. And unplanned. So talk to me about the things that are hard about this. Okay, so you have this conversion kit for airlines. How hard is it for them to convert to using these fuel modules? It's designed to not be very hard. So it's essentially a replacement of the engine. um, And we also have to add a compartment in the back of the airplane it replaces a couple of rows of seats for storing these hydrogen modules. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a net seat count reduction on the airplane, and we have to make up for that seat count reduction through better unit economics elsewhere, right? So that airlines have sort of equivalent costs per seat mile, right. which is what they care about in terms of operating costs. And so we make up for, for the loss of seats and improved efficiency. And also the maintenance costs on a fuel cell are significantly lower than on a jet engine. So those two factors, uh, together with uh, the cost trajectory of, of green hydrogen, basically make it so that the unit economics for the airline are about the same mm-hmm. uh, starting in the mid-2020s. Mm-hmm. And then they get considerably better as the cost of hydrogen continues to drop in the latter part of the 2020s and into the 2030s. In terms of how much hydrogen costs compared to jet fuel, apparently that's a complicated question. 
because hydrogen itself doesn't have a price. It's not like a barrel of oil. And so the cost of it comes down to what you spent to make it. But Paul says that between the expansion of green energy and the various subsidies, especially in the Inflation Reduction Act, it's likely that in the U.S. at least, the price is similar to jet fuel and it will be more cost effective by the end of the decade. All right, now it's time for a quick break. When we come back, what it'll take to get airplane makers to build future planes to take little Nespresso hydrogen pods instead of jet fuel. This week's episode is sponsored by Fennel Markets. You know how I have my three-part strategy for personal climate action, right? Vote, invest, and adopt. Well, sometimes the investing part can be a little fuzzy. It can feel like the kind of drop that will never fill up the bucket. And now you can take your climate and socially responsible investing to the next level with Fennel, the investing app that's on a mission to actually democratize investing. Here's how. First of all, you get the quality data that right now is generally only available to institutional investors. So you can choose your investments based on what matters most to you. That could be Buffett-style price-to-earnings, sure, or how happy a company's employees are, or yes, their carbon footprint. With over 200-plus ESG data points, Fennel empowers you to invest in companies that align with your values. And Fennel also empowers your voice as a shareholder. Other brokerages lend out their securities and give away your vote. With Fennel, you can stay up-to-date on past and upcoming votes surrounding matters you care about, like child labor policies, carbon emissions, and pay gap reporting. It's all right there in the app. Ready to get started? Download the Fennel app today and enjoy a seven-day free trial. Plus, they're offering one month free off your subscription once you've made an account. Download the app today at fennel.app.link slash mollywood. Take control of your investments and join the super-empowered investing movement with Fennel. A drop really can become a flood. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool. I'm talking with Paul Aramenko, the CEO of Universal Hydrogen, a company on a mission to transform air travel with green hydrogen on demand. Let's talk about the planes themselves and what will need to happen for this. to. Be. Is it the hope that this will be kind of a double A battery? I mean, that it, you know, it will become a sort of it's a standard and either planes will be retrofitted to that design standard and that planes of the future will incorporate it. Yeah, I think consumer batteries are a really good analogy, right? We do want these modules to be interchangeable. We do want them to be ubiquitous. Of course, you will have different flavors, if you will, of of modules for different applications, right? So you have big airplanes, small airplanes, you might have non-aviation applications, and those will have sort of AA, AAA, D-cell batteries. But within a particular category, you, of course, want maximum interchangeability and maximum degree of standardization. And that's one of the reasons that we we have timed the company very carefully. We didn't want to be too early, right? Because we want to intersect the hydrogen cost curve uh, right around the point of of parity. But we want to be early enough that our solution does become the industry standard. Right. Okay. Now I feel like we should tell people why you know so much about airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) What is, (laughs) tell us, for someone who's sitting here thinking, (laughs) you know, here's some technologist coming into this industry that he doesn't know anything about, hoping they will design airplanes around his battery. Give us your background. Give us the origin story. Well, I, I am every. I do have to say that I am every day reminded how much I don't know about airplanes. <laughs> but uh, but I have spent the bulk of my career in aviation. I uh, my my two most recent roles prior to creating Universal Hydrogen were to be the chief technology officer at Airbus, 
and after that to be the Chief Technology Officer at UTC, or United Technologies Corporation, which is now part of Raytheon, or RTX. Mm. And UTC, notably, uh, for, for this conversation, was the parent of Pratt & Whitney jet engines. And so I've looked at this problem for first from an aircraft design perspective at Airbus and invested a lot of effort in a variety of different decarbonization technologies, uh, hydrogen, synthetic fuels, biofuels, uh, hybrid electric, battery electric, right? We, we, did, we did it all. We investigated it all. Yeah. Um, and, and then from an engine, from a jet engine perspective. Because for the larger aircraft, you can't do a fuel cell and electric motor. You do have to do a hydrogen-burning jet engine. And the conclusion was that both a hydrogen airplane and a hydrogen-burning jet engine require no fundamental breakthrough. It is within the realm of, of existing technology. It's been done, as I mentioned. Right, right. <laughs> We've flown hydrogen airplanes dating back to the 50s, and, and the Soviets flew an airliner a couple decades ago. So, so it is absolutely doable to do airliners up to the A320-737 sort of scale, uh, what's called single aisle or narrow body, on hydrogen without any significant change to the airplane or significant change to the, to the engine. It does need to be a new airplane, mm-hmm. but, it, but there's nothing radically different about it. There's no science, there's no invention, there's no drastically different geometry or architecture that's needed for it. So that is all very doable, which is why the missing piece was hydrogen logistics, is how do you get the hydrogen from the point of production to the airport right. without building trillions and trillions of dollars of infrastructure which is the, the standard way, right? There are trillions and trillions of jet fuel distribution infrastructure, of LNG, liquefied natural gas infrastructure. And if hydrogen goes the same way, it'll take decades and trillions of dollars. And so we're trying to create a shortcut for the, for the infrastructure to make hydrogen aviation a reality much sooner than if it were dependent on a conventional infrastructure build out. Right. I sort of feel like to put an even finer point on it, you know, for consumers who may have seen the Toyota Mirai on the road, and have ever talked to an owner, you may know that there's like one gas station in LA and maybe one, I mean, you know, using gas station as a catch-all term, there's one refueling station in LA and maybe like one in Berkeley somewhere and anywhere between there, you don't know where to fill up. And if you, and if you imagine a scenario in which in order to roll out a solution, you had to build a fueling station everywhere, we're seeing that with electric cars right now, what you're saying is I will bring the battery to you. I will bring the gas to your house. Well, in this case, your airport. Yeah, that's right. And I think this was also part of Tesla's brilliance in jumpstarting the electric vehicle industry mm-hmm. is uh, Tesla is as much a smart charger company as they are a car company. Yep. They solved both the chicken and the egg on the infrastructure side and the vehicle side, and nobody else was doing that. And now we see other automakers coming, begging and pleading to Tesla to use their charger network, right? Right. And so we're we're trying to do that in a different domain of, of application with a different energy modality. But we're trying to, again, solve that chicken and egg problem by doing both sides simultaneously for the first product. Okay, so then talk to the skeptics who think that green hydrogen itself does not scale. I feel like... Even very recently, I had a conversation with someone who said, this is so far out. This is a pipe dream. Why do people say that? And what do you say to them? Well, I think one of the most common misconceptions I hear about hydrogen, and this is sort of where we started the conversation and why I was so emphatic about it, is I think people think that hydrogen 
is is a source of energy. Right. And they say, but it, but it's a terrible source of energy because we got to put all this energy in to be able to to produce it and then to liquefy it. Right. So it's a, it's very inefficient as a source of energy. Yeah. It's because it's not <laughs> it's not a right. source of energy at all. Okay. It's just a it's just an energy storage modality. And yes, you do pay you do you do have to invest a lot of energy to create the hydrogen. And then you extract a fraction of that energy through a fuel cell or, or through hydrogen combustion. But if you do the calculus, it's not that expensive, assuming that the electricity is there, the renewable electricity, and, and, and is affordable. And it's very, very weight efficient. Right. And so I think if you put that lens on, you say, can we produce enough green hydrogen in the world in order to feed all of aviation? And the answer is yes. If you look at the projections for green hydrogen capacity, and if you look at, and if we are wildly successful, and so we deliver on the regional product, uh, we deliver on a, on a hydrogen single aisle, right, or narrow body, obviously not by ourselves, right, but Air, Airbus or Boeing would build the airplane, GE or Pratt & Whitney would build the engine, and we would be the fuel supplier. If all of that happens, and that is the bulk of aviation emissions, by the way, that segment, A320s and 737s, and their successor, mm-hmm. which is coming next decade. That is more than half of all aviation emissions, which is counterintuitive. People think that it's the very large, very long-range airplanes that maybe emit the most. And of course, on a per-flight basis, that's true. But in aggregate, it's it's actually the mid-tier, right, what's called single-aisle or narrow-body aircraft, because there's so many of them, and they fly so frequently. All the intra-Europe, intra-North America, and intra-China routes, right, they're all flown by that class of airplanes. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, that is who produces most aviation emissions. It is due for a new airplane, both from Boeing and from Airbus, and that airplane is very addressable with the hydrogen technology. And so, uh, so if you if you count that class, if you count regional, if you count uh, electric air taxis, will probably go hydrogen. If you add all of that up, it's still a relatively small fraction of the projected green hydrogen production capacity. If you if you believe the industry experts like McKinsey and others, right, who put, who put out these forecasts. Now, obviously. There is a, there's a supply-demand issue here. So if the demand is there, the supply will come. There's no inherent constraint on, on supply, and it takes much longer for Airbus to build a new airplane than for somebody to commission a new electrolyzer project. So as soon as Airbus announces a new hydrogen airplane, there will be a rush to build the green hydrogen production capacity, and there's no fundamental limit other than renewable electricity. Mm-hmm. And renewable electricity capacity f- far, far, far exceeds any demand for, for green hydrogen. That will not be the limiter. And then there's electrolyzer production capacity, which also is not a chokehold. Mm-hmm. So if you if you extrapolate to all of aviation, there is not really any obvious obstacle to producing enough green hydrogen to feed, to feed aviation. Is it here today? Uh, of course not. Right. That capacity will need to come online. But there's no obstacle to that capacity coming online if the demand is there. So let's talk about the demand. What are the factors, the elements that will create that demand? And the hurdles that have to be overcome to get that demand to where it needs to be? Well, I think there's a couple, right? So the most obvious one is just the unit economics. Mm-hmm. Can, can, can hydrogen be cost competitive uh, with jet fuel? And we talked about that and the answer is yes, it can. Yep. With a fuel cell by the middle of the decade, with hydrogen combustion by the end of this decade. So that is not the limiter. Can you have a hydrogen airplane and a hydrogen engine? Absolutely. 100%. It's been done. It will be done again. It's with a squarely within the realm of existing technology. Will passengers want to fly on a hydrogen airplane? 
And I, you know, occasionally people raise the specter, say, "Oh, what, what about the Hindenburg, right, or, or or something like that." I mean, I was gonna get there. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but but look, uh, you brought up the Mirai, right? The Toyota Mirai is on the roads of California. Does anybody swerve off the road or or tense up as they pass a Mirai because they're worried about the Hindenburg? Right. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, what's on fire on the road all the time is like EVs. And it's, uh, yeah. Not all the time, but <laughs> <laughs> of, of all of the, the cars on the road right now, the one that would be the worst fire, frankly, is an electric car. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And 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 so I think the Mirai has a has a much better safety record and hydrogen in general is a safer fuel than than, than gasoline or, or diesel or jet fuel. Right. We can talk for a variety of different reasons, right? But it's just, it's the basic physics of it. And so I think that passenger acceptance, I mean, maybe you need to brand it as a fuel cell airplane or as a zero emissions airplane or whatever, right? But I don't think that there'll be a passenger acceptance issue as there hasn't been in the automotive world. And then maybe the last or maybe the second to last issue I'll raise is what, what needs to change. I think that there's a mindset issue in aviation. You know, the industry has been a victim of its own success. We've basically had incremental evolution of airplane design since the birth of the jet age. And so the industry, the, the DNA, the muscle memory, right? Nobody knows how to do anything beyond incrementalism in the industry anymore. Mm-hmm. Every airplane is a successive small improvement on the previous. This is why Boeing has been torturing the 737 since, what, the 1960s when the first 737 came out. And they've had a dozen of derivative variants since, since then and haven't launched a new airplane. Mm-hmm. I think that the industry, the aviation industry in particular, but so so are many other sectors, right, are victims to this incrementalist mindset. And we got to break out of it because this will be different. And there needs to be some bravery and some intestinal fortitude from the leadership of the industry. I was doing an interview with um, PBS NewsHour. Uh, it hasn't aired yet. Uh, it should air sometime this summer. And I was I was explaining all of this and uh, the interviewer said, so, so what you mean to say is that uh, not only do you have to get the fossils out of the fuel tank, but you got to get the fossils out of the C-suite. <laughs> and I was like, you said it, why, sir. You said it, not me. Yeah? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's why they make the big bucks. So, but that is true. Yeah. There is there is an element of truth to it. And that needs to change because for the aviation sector, this the climate change issue is an existential one. Right. It is the sector where traffic volumes far outpace improvements in airplane efficiency traffic volume growth, I should say. And so the easiest way to curtail aviation emissions is to curtail traffic growth. Mm-hmm. And if the governments end up ha- having to break that and say, look, no, you can't grow traffic volumes. We're going to curtail it through through whatever means, through bans, right? Like in France, we're seeing flight bans. Right. Uh, in other places, we're seeing steep carbon taxes. That will break the whole industry because the industry has built that exponential growth into all of the investor expectations, right? And everything, everything about the industry operates around that law. It'll be catastrophic. And I'm not sure that the, the, the captains of the industry see that today. So be brave, airplane makers. Who's going to go first? Someone will have to. And here's where, before I let you go, I want to address this lifeline that many of these aircraft manufacturers are clinging to. Sustainable Aviation Fuel, or SAF. Paul has some thoughts on this. So I asked him, what is it and why is it not enough? Yeah, so actually there are two flavors of SAFs, uh, two broad categories. One is biofuels, Mm -hmm. which is where you use some kind of biological process in order to synthesize a hydrocarbon fuel. Mm -hmm. And in the process, the bioorganism, right, or process, 
can sequester carbon, right? So for instance, uh, at Airbus, when I, when I first arrived in, uh, in, the, in the CTO role, I, I started touring Airbus's R&D facilities. And one of the things that we had in Munich at the Airbus R&D center there was a big algae farm. And the algae farm was to create uh, biofuel jet fuel. And I asked, well, so it's, you know, it was a fairly large farm, right? I said, what's the output of this farm? And they gave me a little Erlenmeyer flask and said, here, you can keep this on your desk and, and show it to people, right? This is, this is the output of the farm. Uh-huh. And, and we ran some numbers. And in order to feed the entire Airbus fleet with, with a biofuel that comes, an algae-based biofuel, you'd need to cover the entire Mediterranean Sea with algae. You can imagine what other negative environmental externalities would would come from something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So the the amounts of biomass that you need to produce meaningful meaningful amounts of biofuel are huge, and the impact is actually relatively small. So the theory is you're, you're still producing a hydrocarbon. It looks just like kerosene, right? Which is what, what jet fuel is made out of, but it's kerosene that comes from a from a biological process. And so you burn the kerosene, you produce CO two, you produce a bunch of non CO two stuff. But then you say, ah, but my algae sucked up some CO2 from the air while it was producing the CO2. And you say, well, how much CO2 did it suck up? And the answer is very little <laughs> of the aggregate output. So, so biofuels are not very scalable. They sound cool, right? But they're, they're, not, they're not a very scalable process, nor are they very efficient at actually solving the environmental problem. Now, synthetic fuels are a little bit different. Synthetic fuels are where you create your hydrocarbon. So you're still creating a synthetic kerosene molecule that looks just like a conventional fossil jet fuel kerosene molecule. Um, but you create it from hydrogens and from carbons. So first you create green hydrogen the same way that you would create green hydrogen mm. for us, for universal hydrogen, mm-hmm. uh, for powering airplanes. Then you suck some CO2 out of the air using some process like direct air capture. And then you take the carbons from the CO2, you take the hydrogens, and you synthetically combine them to make a hydrocarbon molecule. You take it to 35,000 feet, you burn it, you produce CO2, you produce a bunch of non-CO2 stuff that has a global warming impact. And you say, aha, but I atoned for that because I captured some CO2 right. to combine with my hydrogen to make my synthetic hydrocarbon. So it is an offset scheme. And I think it's important to understand that you're still burning a hydrocarbon, but you're trying to offset that by doing something good somewhere else in the process. So functionally you could be still digging up fossil fuels and paying somebody to plant trees in the Amazon. It's a functionally equivalent to that. Right. Plus, you already made green hydrogen, so why not just use that, right? And then Paul points out that to do all the stuff after you create the hydrogen takes four times more electricity to run than it takes to just create the hydrogen and use that. So sustainable airline fuel could end up costing four times more just spitballing here, then green hydrogen. And? And so so that's the, uh, now it's actually a little bit worse than that because when you burn a hydrocarbon at 35,000 feet, you produce CO2, you produce aerosols and soot and other things that also have a global warming impact actually more significant than CO2. That's an aviation specific sort of altitude dependent effect. It's not true for cars. And so if you count for that and you say, I got, I got to capture even more CO2 to offset the global warming effect of my aerosols and particulates, then you're almost 10x the energy. But that's the trade. Right now, what the aviation industry is saying is we don't want to change the airplane. We don't want to change the engine. Right. But you airlines are going to have to pay 4 to 10x more for the fuel. And that is how even minus flight bans or shaming or taxes or what have you, you could end up with a whole lot fewer people flying because far fewer people will be able to afford it. 
At the end of the day, it comes down to just a few airplane manufacturers to make this call. And Paul says the looming cost catastrophe, costastrophe, is sinking in and airlines might actually start to lead the pressure campaign on the Boeings and Airbuses of the world. I think the airlines are starting to see the pressure. Yeah. So we've had a couple of airlines that have invested in universal hydrogen. A number are, are very interested in, in being early adopters of the regional technology and seeing how it plays out and whether it is something that would work for bigger airplanes. So I think the world is watching. Airbus and Boeing will have to make a decision by the end of the 2020s hmm. on what that new single aisle or narrow body airplane, the replacement for the 737 and the A320 is going to look like. And that could be a hydrogen airplane. But that decision will come in the latter part of the 2020s. And we're doing this regional product so that it's in service. So we've retired as much of the risk and, and been as convincing of a proof point for the next bigger class of airplanes as is possible. And listen, who knows what's going to happen and who's going to pay whom and whether this works. It's a relatively early stage company with some pretty decent headwinds in front of it. But here's the thing. It's possible. It's totally doable to have planes that are significantly quieter, that emit only water when they pass overhead, that pop in totally zero carbon fuel cells and swap them out when they're done. And we haven't even gotten to whether these things can power rockets. It is possible. We can have a future like this if only we're willing to get there. All right, that's it for this episode of Everybody in the Pool. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. And as always, email your thoughts and ideas to in at everybodyinthepool.com. For a deeper dive and more climate solutions, news, and information, subscribe to my newsletter at mollywood.co. And thanks again to our sponsor, Fennel. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.